right, the case is submitted. We'll hear argument now in uh, number 99-1994, Nevada versus Floyd Hicks. Mr. Howell. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to make three principal points this morning. The first is that state officials should not be sued in tribal courts. Uh, Tribal jurisdiction over state officials would be inconsistent with their status. You mean ever, for anything, no matter what? Uh, Yes, Your Honor, as long as they were acting uh, as in, in a representative capacity for the state. This comes to us in the context of a state official who went to the tribal court to get authority to carry out a search warrant and was given a warrant with certain terms and conditions to go on the reservation and carry it out. And if the allegation is that the officer did not follow the limitations, in the authorized warrant. You think the tribal court can never have jurisdiction over those actions? Your Honor, I, the I, I That's your position? Yes, Your Honor. That is Suppose our he just goes and buys some gasoline and doesn't pay for it. Now he drives up to the tribal gas station, buys some gasoline, drives off, doesn't pay for it. I mean, can they sue him for the money in the tribal court? The answer is no, Your Honor, not in tribal court, but in state or federal court. And there is a remedy there. We're not here to suggest well, that there's no remedy. Okay. What, what is your authority for this broad initial proposition you're making? The, the authority is what case? Oliphant, which describes a divestiture of tribal jurisdiction which is inconsistent with the tribe's status. But that's criminal that's jurisdiction, a criminal is it not? Yes, Your Honor, it was. Uh, how, how about civil jurisdiction? In, in the case of civil jurisdiction, um, the, the case uh, of National Farmers Union uh, also requires an examination of the tribe's uh, sovereignty and the, the extent it's been divested. And I read in another brief, a 1934 opinion of a solicitor general who said that the tribes under acts passed by Congress had the basic sovereignty that they'd had for generations, uh, unless it was taken away. And I guess for generations they could have sued people who went and bought gasoline without paying for it. I mean, I don't know if it always would have been gasoline, but I, I would assume a basic contract action would be within their grant, wouldn't it? Well, Your Honor, first of all, I, I, I'm not prepared to concede that much. Uh, regarding even a non-member in a private capacity. But with regard to state officials, there there are special considerations. The state officials are protected, we know, with a certain immunity, um, which has constitutional dimensions. And our position is that that, in conjunction with the Court's instruction to examine the extent to which tribes have been divested implicitly because of their status as tribes, results in the rule that uh, jurisdiction over state officials um, has been divested. Mr. Howell, I could understand a position that says when a state official is acting pursuant to state authority, there's a warrant, a state warrant, uh, that that person can't be questioned in tribal court. But suppose this officer, instead of going in with a warrant, just went in, rammed down the door, beat up, the plaintiff. He's still wearing his state uniform, and he's still looking for evidence of whatever animal that was. Would you say that even in, that, in such a case, there would be no tribal court jurisdiction? We would, Your Honor. No tribal court jurisdiction. So you don't, you're not even making a distinction that's often made in these um, public employment cases between acting within the scope of one's authority and going so far beyond the pale of anything that would fit within that authority as to be um, on a frolic of one's own. You, you, you wouldn't. We're suggesting a higher standard, and that being acting in a representative capacity. And that's uh, a standard that we see employed, um, albeit in, a, in, a, in, in ambiguous fashion. What does that mean? He, he at least has to believe that he's uh, uh, pursuing the state's business? 
Suppose he's wearing his uniform and he just goes on the reservation to beat up uh, uh, one of the members of the tribe that he doesn't like. He's, but he, he's in uniform and he's, he's on duty. That's a difficult case, Your Honor. I'll concede. But Gee, this isn't, I don't think it's difficult at all. That isn't this case, though. There, there's no allegation that our officials acted outside of any state authority. The, the only allegation regarding uh, scope of authority is the constitutional violation alleged. And otherwise, the complaint alleges that they were acting as game wardens. They do what game wardens do, and they get warrants and, and uh, search for evidence of crime that was committed off the reservation by a reservation member. And this is a core state function. It's a peace officer function. Nevada has to be able to enforce its criminal laws within its own borders. May, may I be sure I understand your position? Are you saying that your immunity rule would only apply when the state official is acting within the scope of his authority? Is that what your position is? I, I phrase it differently, Your Honor. I, I suggest a representative capacity um, being the standard. Well, supposing he, he goes beyond his representative capacity and does what Justice Scalia describes, would he, would he be immune or not? There, I don't. Well, I, I think that would. I think in that case, the analysis then falls back to a different. Test, and that being the ordinary test for a uh, private citizen. Um, uh, but that isn't a colic of his own or something like that? I, I, Surely he'd be treated differently if he were uh, an officer, but all, uh, unrelated to any of his state business. But why, why doesn't your rep- No, I can say, why don't you go the whole hog and say that, uh, uh, that it's, it's your position that it ought to be a question for the state court and not for the tribal court, whether in fact. Uh, he was just going in to beat up a tribal member he didn't like or he was going on state business. That's doubtless going to be one of the issues in the case, and that whole case should belong in, tri- in, in, in state court rather than tribal court. That's not an irrational position. No, it isn't, Your Honor. Is that the position you're taking? Uh, I'll take that Why position, not? Your Honor. Well, but if you take <laughs> that <laughs> position, what about, what about the case in which the officer acknowledges that he's not on state business? How about that officer? That officer would then have to be tested under the appropriate standard for a private citizen and tribal jurisdiction over um, private citizens. So then your view is that the immunity attaches if the officer acknowledges that he was not within his state authority? I'm sorry. The immunity would not attach if he acknowledged it backwards. That's that's correct, Your Honor. Does your argument depend on the fact simply that there is uncertainty under the jurisdictional standard as to how far the, the tribal court's jurisdiction goes? Or would your argument be the same if the statute were clear beyond a peradventure of a doubt that someone uh, who was acting in what you describe as official capacity but is being sued in his individual capacity uh, would nonetheless be subject to jurisdiction. In other words, are, are you making this argument in order to construe a vague jurisdictional grant, or are you making this argument as something that would be entitled to prevail no matter how clear the statutory grant was? Uh, first of all, Your Honor, there is — I'm sorry, I, I may have misapprehended. There isn't a statutory grant here, uh, save for the civil, civil rights law of the federal government. Um, uh, but our, our first position is that there's a categorical rule that state officials doing state business should not be subject to the tribal court's jurisdiction. If I agree with you on that as to, as to uh, state officers um, enforcing the state's criminal laws, which is what was at issue here, do I have to agree with you with regard to all other state, uh, state officers? I don't. Yes, Your Honor, I think so. Professors at state universities, uh, uh, anybody else? I mean, there's a distinctive aspect of, uh, of the enforcement of the criminal laws, and that is the, the tribe has no, no authority uh, to stop the state from enforcing its criminal laws on the reservation. And one can very plausibly argue that along with that goes no authority to to determine whether persons uh, acting in that criminal law enforcement capacity have gone beyond the scope of their authority or not. That's very rational. But I wouldn't have to extend that to, uh, to other, other state officers, would I? Because in, in, in the civil field, the state can't just walk in and, and, and take over the uh, uh, enforcement of civil laws on, on the reservation. 
Your Honor, you're correct. The state can't take over a reservation. Um, but the state carries on a multitude of functions on reservations. Well, do you outside take the position that the state uh, has authority to send its criminal law enforcement officials onto a tribal reservation to carry out state criminal law functions? <clears throat> I do take that position, but I acknowledge that it's. Uh, There's some question about that. There is isn't indeed. there? There is indeed. Like the right to exclude on the part of the. Tribal authorities? Yes, Your Honor. From the <clears throat> reservation? There is no. I mean, what would you point to for the extraordinary notion that the state criminal law enforcement officers have total freedom to go on a reservation to carry out criminal law functions? I, I, I point to the fact that state. Uh, is there some law or some case that you can point to for that? Yes, the, the case of um, X Rel Ray versus Martin. And uh, I believe McBratney described the uh, existence of state criminal jurisdiction on reservations. Uh, it's, it's not an exclusive jurisdiction. For crimes committed off. I, I perhaps put my hypothetical a little too broadly. But in fact, the tribal courts do not have jurisdiction to try for crimes committed uh, off reservation, do they? If a crime is committed off-reservation, it's not within the jurisdiction of the tribal court, is it? <clears throat> Even if it's a crime committed uh, by a tribal member if, if were or a tribe? I think that's correct, Your Honor. I'd say it was some well, uncertainty. I think it's pretty crucial to your case, and I assume that to be the case. I assume that to, that to be the law, that the state has the authority to enforce its state criminal laws with regard to offenses committed off the reservation, even when that requires the state to go on the reservation to get the culprit. Yes. That, that, that all is correct in my, with my understanding, too. It's not up to the tribe to enforce that law. It must be up to the state to enforce it. Since only the state can enforce it, I assume the state can go on the reservation. The state also has criminal jurisdiction on reservations if over non-member crime. that much is right, then getting the backup of the tribal court's approval for the warrant was just a polite gesture, a meaning, a form that was not necessary legally. In other words, here we do have an investigation uh-huh of something that occurred off the reservation. The warrant is to go on the reservation yes. to investigate, but the crime itself was off reservation. That's correct. And I right. think Justice Scalia asked you, would the tribal court have authority to prosecute a case that occurred off the reservation? I think you said the answer was no. I think that's correct. I am tentative. You're not certain about it. I, I know in this case that the tribe would not prosecute that crime. I do know that for certain. But then the next thing is the, the crime occurs off the reservation. The warrant is to go on the reservation and conduct a search there. As you understand it, it is not necessary to get any permission of any kind from the tribe because what the state official is enforcing uh, is, is an investigation for a crime that occurred off the reservation. Is that yes, right? Your Honor. I believe that the state's physical jurisdiction follows its legal jurisdiction. So you well, think it was not necessary to get the tribal court permission to carry out a search warrant on a house belonging to a tribal member on the reservation? Correct, Your Honor, although I admit I think it, that's an unusual proposition. Do you cite anything? Uh, in your brief for that proposition? Uh, I thought we took it as a given that the tribal court had to authorize the search. In my reply brief on page 18, I've referenced some authorities that uh, that are indirectly related that establish a criminal jurisdiction for the states on reservations. It's only by raising an inference that I get to the conclusion that we have this authority. And if we, if we had not uh, sought the tribal judge's approval, perhaps we'd be here on that issue as well. I confess there's, uh, it's a great area of uncertainty. But it is a concurrent jurisdiction that the state and the tribe have on reservations. The tr- reservations are still part of the state. And, and so uh, the state has to be able to perform these functions in order to do its job properly with law enforcement. I certainly wouldn't think that the state's ability to enforce 
criminal laws off the reservation is going to be dependent upon whether a tribal court will will deign to issue a, a search warrant or not. I mean, that, that, that would be a, a tremendous incursion upon the state's sovereignty, that it can't enforce its criminal laws unless it, unless it gets a tribal court to, to let it go on and, and, and search for the offense. Exactly, and that's the I, position we I have. I assume that to be, the, to, to be pretty clear law. Yes. Another, another point we've made is the way that this where, where did you take that position? Because I didn't see the — I'm sorry. It's on um, page 18 of my reply brief in, in the second paragraph. Um, the, the argument also incorrectly assumes state officials are powerless to pursue state law enforcement, law enforcement objectives on a reservation except with the tribe's consent. And here I've identified the fact that states do have authority over off-reservation crimes committed by tribal members and that reservations are part of the state within uh, which they occur. So now you, you are confirming that it was a matter of holy test to ask the tribe, but it was not necessary. That's correct, Your Honor. Although we did ask the tribal judge on both occasions um, out of uh, deference to the tribe. And he granted permission, did he not? Yes, Your Honor. What, what statutes are there concerning uh, concerning state criminal law jurisdiction um, with respect to either on-reservation or off-reservation crimes? And there are some federal statutes that there, there is federal statute on the matter. Um, it, is, it eludes me at the moment. I, I, th- th- certainly, uh, Public Law 280 uh, was a grant to certain states of, of jurisdiction on reservations. Was that in effect here in Nevada? It, it was in the past, but it isn't now. All that jurisdiction has been re- relying on Public Law 280. No, we're not. While we're on the subject of federal statutes, you, you, one thing you said surprised me, and I, I just want to make sure I understand it. Is there, is it your position, do you understand that there is no federal statutory recognition for tribal jurisdiction? Um, not in this case, not with this tribe. There, there well, what about other cases? I mean, treaties and statutes are unique to different tribes. There's a but they they are all specific to the to the tribe or to the jurisdiction. There's no general statutory recognition. As far as I know, Your Honor, that's okay. correct. Why, why, just out of curiosity, not quite just out of curiosity, but why why didn't the defendant instead of sort of engaging in all these proceedings for 10 years, why didn't he simply remove the case to the federal court? I'm sorry, the defendant? Why didn't the defendant in this case simply remove it to the federal court? Well, Your Honor, that goes to the question brought up in the U.S. brief. I don't see removal authority. Well, it says you'd have to read the word state. It means state or tribe. But one, if, I mean, maybe you can't. Isn't that hard? You, I don't know. You, you say that as though it's the simplest thing in the world. I thought for you it might be. I, I mean, that's the, that is an issue. But if that's possible, I want, because if that's possible, then doesn't that offer a perfect solution? It's, it's no not problem. perfect, exactly. Anyone who does, any state officials not bothered, all he has to do is remove, and then that would be the end of any potential conflict. That would be a, if that had been the case, then this Court would not have had to go through the um, motions it went through in those two cases. It says you have to exhaust the tribe, and then you can go into the district court at the end of the line. It was only because you couldn't get out. There was — I am unaware of any authority that says that you can remove from a tribal court to any other court. I'm not aware of any uh, either, Your Honor. Um, we spent three years in tribal court arguing our immunity questions. I mean, did you and try to remove it? That's what — maybe it's just obviously impossible to do, and if it is impossible to do, then the conflict of interest that you're talking about exists. But that's why I wondered. How, how are, I see a lot of cases where apparently it starts off in the tribal court, and then they're over in the federal court, and there are injunctions being issued back and forth, and what's the basis? Is there some — I'm trying to see if there's if this conflict of interest is necessarily there. Basis is you can't remove. We 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 considered removal, but didn't see that it was um, specifically provided for in the statutes. 
We also were aware of the exhaustion requirements, and we attempted to exhaust. And, of course, removal would not be an option. Removal to a federal court would not be an option. The whole matter would have had to be left in tribal court, even though there was an enforcement action with respect to state criminal law, if a 1983 action hadn't been part of the claim. If it had just been the tribal claim under tribal law, then you would have been stuck even even on a fanciful reading of Section 1441, you couldn't get it into federal court. Yes, Your Honor. So my, my question is best reserved for the Solicitor General. I, that, I mean, perhaps, you're not aware of it. Maybe he can explain, uh, um, or she, I'm sorry. Um, on the question of immunity, we did spend three years trying to exhaust this issue in tribal court, and only then went to the federal court with a, uh, uh, an independent action. And our position on the immunity uh, issue is that immunity is a bar to suit, and it should be decided when it's raised. And therefore, if the tribal court won't acknowledge the immunity, the, the state what, what officials source, should have — What is the source of immunity law here? Uh, I mean, I take it your position is it can't just be finally determined by the tribe, but should it finally be determined by the, the law of Nevada? It depends on the claim, Your Honor. Uh, on a 1983 claim, assuming there's one available in tribal court, I guess, uh, no, that would be a question of, of federal law. Uh, the other ones would be uh, answered in reference to uh, the state law. The so if, if, if it's a 1983 action, then it's the immunity is determined under qualified immunity doctrines laid down under, under 1983? Possibly so, Your Honor, although that is a question as well. Uh, the, the whole question of whether 1983 is available in tribal court, I think, is um, cast in doubt. Well, what, what was the basis of the action in, in, the, in the district court? It was, it was 1983, was it not? In the tribal court, Your Honor? No, in the, in the, in the, the, this case comes to us from the Ninth Circuit. Yes. And uh, so there, obviously there must have been some action brought in the district court. The District Court of Nevada. Nevada brought the action. Nevada brought as an the independent action. action to enjoin the tribal court okay. after three years there. Those two cases that we had that said that's what you do. You go to the district court, and I think in those cases they said the reason why you have to do that is there is no removal. That was the whole point of the Nevada coming into the district court. If you could have removed to get there, you wouldn't have to bring an action, an independent action. Yes. I thought that there were statements in more than one of our cases to the effect that there is no removal from tribal to federal court. You say you, you don't know. I'm not aware of language like that, Your Honor. If, if this case had been brought in state court under 1983, could the tribal claims, the claims that were being asserted under tribal law, be pended to that action in state court? They could be presented to the court, Your Honor, and then it would, I think it would be a matter of comedy for the Supreme Court to consider whether or not to acknowledge those claims uh, brought under tribal law. Uh, it would be up to the state Supreme Court, ultimately. So it would be a question of state law. In other words, these claims under tribal law are left to the grace of the state, that the state can allow them if it wants to, disallow them if it wants to. So you're saying as far as tribal law is concerned, the tribe has no authority and the state is not obliged to hear those claims. Ultimately, yes, that's correct, Your Honor. And if you understand it, where does uh, the tribe get its uh, tort law? Does it borrow Nevada law? As I understand it, yes, it does. Uh, It uses Nevada law as a guide, which makes it very uncertain. Um, but it does refer to Nevada law quite often. And is, is the, as you understand, the complaint is the liability under uh, Nevada tort law, as borrowed by the tribe, uh, roughly coextensive with the liability under 1983, other than, say, for attorney's fees? Uh, well, first of all, the state tort law supplies limits or caps on claims which aren't uh, available under 1983 actions. Um, so they are, there is the tribal a, law borrow, the, borrow those caps as well, as you understand? As I understand it, they would not, Your Honor. Um, I'm well, not aware. the liability is coextensive <coughs> under, under 
in the tribal court. Under the tort law theories and under 1983. If this were in tribal court, Your Honor, that's our understanding. And the tribal court doesn't borrow Nevada law insofar as the caps are concerned, as best you understand. That's correct, although I don't have an express statement from the court. What is the tribal law? The tribal law is codified or is it just common law developed by the tribal court case by case? A little of the first and a lot of the latter, Your Honor. There is a law and order code, but a great deal of it, I think, is just the custom and practice. Law and order code is civil actions or just criminal? It includes civil matters, I believe, as well as criminal. Can I still — I'm not going to give up yet on getting your opinion on this. Okay. What the Solicitor General precisely recommends is recognizing the policy of the removal statute, namely remove. That's the policy, that you could have what the Court did in El Paso, which is, quote, an injunction given by a Federal court against further litigation in tribal courts that in practical effect gives the same result as a removal. Now, that's it, the Solicitor General's precise, which then, just like removal, would eliminate any possibility of conflict between State and tribal interests. So that's what I'd like your comment. Okay, Your Honor. We see a difficulty with the U.S. position because it works very well for the Federal civil rights claims. Those are immediately removed. The difficulty is with tribal claims because there, there's a — the U.S. suggests there's a Federal defense, but that — or I think — In your case, it would resolve because the whole case would come along, and the — what you'd say about other cases is sufficient unto the day. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I guess normally when you remove, the entire case goes with — Yes. Yes. So if the injunction is the same as removal, you'd get to the result that you want in respect to all of the claims. Unless — unless there were not a Federal claim to begin with in order to remove it. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time with your — Very well, Mr. Howell. Mr. Anaya, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case began when Nevada game wardens sought the approval of the Fallon Tribal Court not once but twice in order to come on to the Fallon Reservation and conduct a search against a tribal member. Well, a petitioner says they didn't even need to get tribal court permission to get a search warrant. We disagree, and the authority of this Court would indicate — And what do you rely on? Williams v. Lee and its progeny, Your Honor, which establishes clearly that the sovereignty of tribes precludes the authority of the State to the extent that interferes with the ability of the tribe to make its own laws and be governed by them. But it's not governed by its own — its own criminal laws insofar as a crime that occurs off the reservation is concerned. Could this tribal court have tried this crime? Your Honor, the tribal court, if this were a crime under tribal law, and it is not a crime under tribal law as far as I know. The tribe can make off-reservation crimes a crime under tribal law triable in the tribal court? It could as to members, perhaps. Oh, crimes by members. By members, perhaps. Not crimes against members. Yes, Your Honor. And what if they did make it triable in tribal court? Would the State still be able to prosecute it as a violation of State law? The State could in any instance prosecute this case. What is at issue here is whether it can go on to the reservation to execute a warrant. Well, a State's ability to prosecute is not worth a whole lot if it needs the buy-or-leave of somebody else to go and grab the person who allegedly did the offense. That may be. And that's what you're saying, that the State is entirely at the mercy of the tribal court to get a search warrant and I presume an arrest warrant as well. Yes. Yes, Your Honor. That is what I'm saying. Quite an incursion on the State's criminal jurisdiction, it seems to me. The State judge who issued the State warrant agreed with that position. The State judge himself explicitly said on the face of the warrant that the warrant was invalid within the reservation without — Might have been wrong. I don't know the man. Well, he could be wrong, but we can — we — he got it right as far as our position goes, Your Honor. The Attorney General of Nevada himself has issued an opinion, has issued an opinion saying that the State has no authority to go on the reservation to execute searches or investigate crimes against members. 
Where is that? I, I no, Your, Your Honor, that's um, that's not in in our brief. But I, I didn't think it was. I would have I would have sat up and my eyes would have popped open. Well, Your Honor, we was were that surprised. A, was that opinion an opinion of state law? Yes. Uh, well, it's an opinion of federal law. Uh, the he was applying fed, the attorney general. Of yes, was the opinion is tying, uh, tying, applying interpretation of federal law. And the lower courts have held the same. What about what John Marshall, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia? Exactly, Your Honor. The, the laws of the state of Georgia have no force in the ter- territory of the Cherokee. But no, that doesn't quite resolve this question, it seems to me. Uh, is there some uh, case authority, either in the Nevada courts or the federal courts, that a federal, uh, uh, that a state official seeking to enforce a, f- a federal uh, a state summons or subpoena or arrest warrant uh, uh, can't go on the Reservation. Yes, the, yes, Your Honor. The, the turtle case. The what? The, the turtle case that we've cited it, uh, is that, what, what, in our briefs. I believe it's the Ninth Circuit, um, which specifically precluded Arizona from going on to the Navajo Reservation and trying to uh, to execute uh, a warrant against people on the reservation. Suppose this had been a federal officer executing a similar warrant, investigating violation of the federal. Well, that would dif- be a different matter, Your Honor. Under the Major Crimes Act, federal officers do have jurisdiction over the reservation. But this is a state offer- officer. And the weight of authority in the lower federal courts and in the state courts interpreting federal law is that state authorities do not have the authority to go on the reservation and execute warrants. How, mu- how much of that authority per- pertains to crimes committed off-reservation? Most of it, Your Honor. Uh, or a good deal of it, at least. And the Turtle case is, is Turtle an example. Turtle and what, what else? No, no. Um, that's that's a Ninth Circuit case, I guess. Right? Well, we have authority. The the, Ninth, the Attorney General's opinion that I cited to. I, uh, I'd like the cite the cite of that. Uh, the Attorney General's opinion, number eighty dash forty two, Nevada Highway Patrol jurisdiction on Indian reservations. Nevada uh, again, opinion number eighty dash forty two, and we can make this. Well, well, to wait, the court. Nevada Highway Patrol. It just related to what the Highway Patrol doing what? Does Nevada ha- Highway Patrol, acting under the authority granted by the state, have the authority to investigate accidents on the reservation? To go onto the reservation, investigate accidents. An accident kind, that occurred on the reservation, occurring wherever, to investigate accidents on the res- reservation, to pursue, even to pursue. Um, uh, Okay. Someone onto the reservation, and the Nevada Attorney General, citing federal authority, mm-hmm. citing the opinions of other state courts, says no. This is the common understanding. This was the understanding of the state judge who issued the warrant. It was the understanding of the tribal authorities that the uh, state authorities could not go onto the reservation. It's not the understanding of the state here. Uh, well, they evidently ch- they they they've had an epiphany or something. I think that's right. They did have an epiphany. In their opening brief, they didn't take this position. They did not take this position. You will recall that uh, Mr. Howe, in articulating the position now, referred to the reply brief. He did not reply to the opening brief. This came as a surprise to us. If they had taken that position, you can be sure that we would have included sufficient authority for the proposition that the uh, state authorities cannot go onto the reservation to investigate crimes committed even off the reservation by non-members or allegedly by non-members. Mr. Anaya, we're, we've gotten pretty far afield, I think, from what we have to resolve in this case, possibly. And there is remaining, as I understand it, a, a suit by Mr. Hicks against a state official in his individual capacity. Your Honor, that's correct. And there, some other people, too? Yes. Uh, no, they're all uh, state officials, three state of, state officers right. who participate. And that remains in their individual capacity. The official capacity suits have been dropped. That is correct. The state says uh, these officials have uh, personal immunity from that suit. Yes, Your in Honor. In tribal court. Yes. And that issue was raised by them in the tribal court, Right. It's ambiguous. They raised it in the context of a motion to quash service of process. They raised the threshold of jurisdictional issues and conflated uh, what appeared to be personal immunity defenses with those. And and the tribal court declined to, what, rule specifically on the personal individual That's correct, Your Honor. The the tribal court only reached the threshold question. The subject matter jurisdiction? That is correct. And and then the state went to federal district court and said, you, 
federal district court should decide these issues. Is that right? That's correct. The state went immediately to federal district court. The court, the state could have. Well, immediately after three years. After a month, after a month. two weeks, I think. Okay. After in that in that in that, in that time period. All right. After the court ruled. And the district court did not deal with the uh, individual immunity allegations. It did not. The state could have immediately moved for a motion to dismiss. dismiss. At that time, we presumed that the tribal court would have convened an evidentiary hearing and would have heard the personal immunity defenses, would have heard about No, by now we're in the federal district court, and the district court didn't deal with it, and then it went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it didn't deal with that issue either. The district court nor the the circuit court dealt with the personal immunity defenses because they applied the rule of exhaustion. Is there a 1983... Uh, action here or not? The complaint by Mr. Clear to me. The complaint by Mr. Hicks before the, file, the tribal court pleads violations of United States constitutional law. Those those allegations have been treated as uh, allegations under Section 1983. But do you represent Mr. Hicks? Yes, I do. And is it a 1983 action or is it not? We it it, it is a 1983 action. Are, are you aware? of any court within the territory of the United States that can interpret 42 U.S.C. 1983 without review by this court? I suppose France or England could apply 1983 and we couldn't uh, uh, review their interpretation. Are you aware of any court? I am not. I am not, and we are not contending necessarily the tribal courts would not be subject to review. Well, how would that happen? It would happen along the device that uh, Justice Souter has suggested, uh, excuse me, Justice Breyer has suggested, um, the d- a device that the um, United States has, has, has suggested as well of well, removal. Of, of, of removal? Well, that wouldn't be a, uh, a review, but that would be a device by which the action you, could well, be I mean, heard ha- by the federal court. You a, mean injunction? Yes, an injunction. A, Another possibility. You mean an injunction a- after the tribal court has, has ruled on the issue, then you enjoin the tribal court because it's made a mistaken interpretation of federal law? It seems Your to Honor, me that that's more intrusive. It is. Than I, what, what, what they're asking for. And we are not saying that we would favor that approach. All right. So on, under your position, there is no way to review a ruling on a matter of federal law given by the trial court, a tribal court. That is yet to be determined, could be determined what, by the lower courts. Our, what is your position as to whether or not a matter, a ruling on an issue of federal law in a tribal court in this suit can be reviewed ultimately in a federal court? Your Honor, Mr. Hicks at this point would choose not to take a position because in litigating the case in the tribal court, if this court were to firm jurisdiction, he would have to explore his options, whether or not he would, it would be to his advantage to seek some kind of review depending upon the tribal court, Suppose, however. at least so far as I were concerned, I can't speak for my colleagues, that the case turned on whether or not there ultimately could be review in the federal court, then I would say you would have to lose because you have, you have indicated to me that there is, that that, that, that review is problematic. Or at least you're reserving your position and you're later going to say there is no review. I'm simply uh, articulating the position of Mr. Hicks. The position of the tribe and the tribal court in this case is that there could be review. There could be review after exhaustion. And that would be the appropriate solution. After after exhaustion. Imagine. Just pursue. And and, and that review consists of an injunction for some kind of abuse of discretion by the trial court? That would be more the removal theory of the United States. Suppose the removal theory doesn't work. Is there any other way to review it? The review mechanism would work something along the lines of the following, although, again, this is uncharted territory. The claims would be exhausted in tribal court. And then, presuming, assuming that the the defendants were to lose, they could then go to the federal court and seek some kind of relief against the well, tribal court. Some kind of, what kind of relief? I've, I've never heard of such a procedure. Well, it would be the same kind of, of um, essentially the same kind of action that uh, defendants have taken in order to challenge the jurisdiction of tribal courts. Essentially an injunction action, but in the course of determining whether or not an injunction should lie, the court would then review the, uh, the jurisdictional issues as well as 
the merits, or at least the application of the law, in the Section 1983 Why shouldn't action. the Federal Court have decided these issues of immunity of the officers when it had the case before it? It applied the, the rule of exhaustion that this Court laid down in National Farmers Union, uh, as well as uh, Iowa Mutual versus LaPlante. That case Could really just went to exhaustion on the jurisdictional issue. Yes, they did, but it could be that the exhaustion could also apply to the merits, and indeed, well, just but, but, but did the did the district court have the power to decide that issue when it had the case in front of it? Strictly speaking, I believe it did. This course can, has articulated the exhaustion rule as one of comedy, uh, and so out of comedy, out of respect for the tribal court, out of but, respect. But it is for correct, is it not, that we've never held? that there must be exhaustion of anything other than the jurisdictional issue. Yes, Your Honor, that, that is the case. But the exhaustion doctrine is a flexible one, and it is intended to accommodate the interests that might — The exhaustion doctrine assumes that there is some later substantive power to, to, to exercise jurisdiction over the case. Uh, but you, you question whether that exhaustion — whether that power ultimately exists. You, you, you don't have exhaustion if there's not going to be some some further jurisdictional substantive review. The position of the tribe in this case is that there could be substantive review. And the, the, as I understand it, they, the the the, tri, the tribe's position would allow for an injunction on either or both of two grounds. One, of course, the jurisdictional issue could be reviewed again as a basis for the injunction. Uh, and if the tribe won the jurisdictional issue, then presumably the merits of the 1983 claim uh, could also be litigated in the federal court. And if the federal court thought the tribal court was wrong on that, it would enjoin enforcement of the judgment. Is that correct? Is that yes. the way it would work? Yes, Your Honor. But you'd have to wait till the end of the line, and that seems to be at odds with the notion of qualified immunity that you get out sooner rather than later. Here you're positing a case, and I think the Ninth Circuit supported it, that you must exhaust in the tribal court. Even your qualified immunity defense, you must exhaust in the tribal court before you can come over to seek an injunctive relief in the federal court. Right. The, 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 the way we contemplate it working, if such an exhaustion were to apply to a 1983 cause of action, would be, or to the tribal cause of action in this case, would be for the tribal court to immediately move forward to determine the qualified or personal immunity defenses. And at that point, the defendant could go to federal court to seek review of that prior to an adjudication of the merits of the claim in the tribal court. No, so he, there, even in the federal law, federal court system, as I recall it, we allow the denial of qualified immunity to be appealed immediately because the you know, the belief is that uh, the important interests uh, served by it are, are simply defeated if you wait until the whole litigation is finished before you tell the, uh, uh, the governmental agent, well, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, why should there be a different rule? Uh, I mean, when, you know, when we go that far to allow such a, an interlocutory appeal in, in the federal system, it seems very strange to require the uh, government official to go all the way through the tribal court and, and await an injunction afterwards. Well, what we're suggesting, or what this model would suggest, is that there would be the opportunity to go immediately upon a determination in the tribal court of the qualified immunity defense to the federal court. So it would be in the nature of an interlocutory review. And not then, then if you lost and you went back and you, you exhausted on the merits, there would be another opportunity to go into the federal court for a different injunction? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. okay. I didn't understand. Yes. You, you, would, you would allow it immediately yes. as soon that, as the qualified immunity That's right. uh, but yeah. would it not have been consistent with our cases for the district court in this case to have said, I'm going to decide the qualified immunity issue right away? He didn't do that. But could, could not, it would have been consistent with our cases for the district judge to have done that, would it not? Perhaps, Your Honor, but the rationale of National Farmers Union and Mutual, I think, uh, counseled in favor of what the district court did. And what if the you assume the rationale of exhaustion applies beyond jurisdictional issues. Yes, it's Your Honor, and I think, and I think to, to, it does. The rationale is to support the self-governance of the tribe and to support the development of tribal courts and their autonomy. And for the district court to have ruled on yes, something. but it supports them to the same extent that it would respect the sovereignty of the states. And, of course, if were a state court involved, they would respect the jurisdiction, require exhaustion on the jurisdictional issue, but nevertheless might have gone ahead on the merits. 
if this were a state court rather than a tribal court. You're, in effect, asking for a, a, a stronger rule of exhaustion in tribal courts than if it were a state court. Well, Your Honor, we think that the situation here is, is one in which you have a tribal court struggling to maintain its jurisdiction, and the difference that the exhaustion doctrine gives to tribal courts is warranted, and the interests of the state officials, uh, the federal interests that might exist in ensuring that their uh, interests are protected, are sufficiently met by the exhaustion uh, rule as long as there's some kind of review uh, and perhaps an interlocutory review of the personal immunity defenses. Do tribal courts routinely hear Section 1983 federal claims? Uh, Not routinely, Your Honor, but there's nothing, there's no federal law that precludes them from hearing 1983 claims. The Fallon Tribal Court is a court of general jurisdiction. The uh, 1983 statute is a jurisdiction intended to provide broad remedies for violations of constitutional rights. And with, in the absence of any affirmative limitation on the jurisdiction of the court, the tribal court, under federal law, it seems to follow quite naturally that the Fallon Tribal Court, as a court of general jurisdiction, would have jurisdiction to hear a Section 19. It is still not clear to me the theory on which any of such, any tribal court determinations on such matters can be reviewed in any federal court. Well, the theory what is the theory? The theory is that there is a a, a federal interest in ensuring that uh, the state defendants' immunity defenses would be sufficiently aired. The federal question that gives federal question jurisdiction? Well, that's right. This would assume that the immunity defenses would be defenses under federal law, and that is the position that the United States has taken, and it's a position that the tribe accepts, that these defenses could become federal law, and hence they would be the basis for uh, review in federal court. There are other situations where we just fire off injunctions where we, we think a federal interest uh, may be involved. Do we have authority to do that? This is a unique context, yeah, Ron. It sure is. It is. And the unique context and wrinkles that exist here uh, are because of historical situations and patterns that have existed uh, and that have arisen uh, and continued and require this court to um, well, maybe they require. I mean, there, 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 there are two conclusions you could draw from the absence of any review provision in the tribal court for 1983 action. One is that we can invent some never before heard of or and never elsewhere used power of, of, of this court, of, of federal courts to issue an injunction. The other one is that the tribal court has no authority to entertain 1983 actions. That would solve the problem just as well, wouldn't it? That would solve the problem just like no, not your client's problem. I understand that. But, uh, thank, that you, thank you, Mr. Anaya. Uh, Ms. McDowell, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Tribal Court has jurisdiction over Mr. Hicks's civil damages suits against the state game wardens in their personal capacities. How about a 1983 action? Well, we would say that the Federal Courts have concurrent jurisdiction over that sort of action, and as in El Paso Natural Gas, uh, we think that there should be an opportunity effectively to remove the case to Federal Court through an injunction. I agree, but does it exist? Uh, to the extent it existed in El Paso, Your Honor, it exists here as well. Congress has expressed its preference for uh, a federal forum at a defendant's request when he has been sued on a federal cause of action. That occurs through the removal statute uh, when the defendant is sued in state but the, court. But um, uh, the Wheeler Act, is that, is that the act, uh, the Nuclear Power Act, had, had a specific provision for exclusive jurisdiction. And you don't, we don't have that here. Exclusive jurisdiction, Your Honor. The El Paso uh, case was not a removal case. Yes, it was. Um, with respect, Your Honor, it was a removal case. Um, it was a case in which uh, well, there was um, there was a there was excuse me there was an underlying <coughs> there was an under, underlying <coughs> congressional act which gave exclusive jurisdiction. Uh, only if the defendant raised it, Your Honor, the case uh, would be free to proceed in state court uh, for a nuclear tort or in tribal court unless the defendant uh, sought a federal forum. That was the case in El Paso, as, as we understand it, and that would also be the case here. The cases um, under 1983 could proceed in tribal court, but uh, if the defendant elects a federal forum, he should be um, entitled to that at the outset of the case so that the trial of the facts. Really um, making up a statute that Congress didn't pass, because that's what happens 
a federal officer is sued in state court. He can remove it. Why can't he remove it? Because Congress had said so. So here Congress has said nothing at all. Well, that's correct, Your Honor. That was also the case in El Paso, uh, but the Court didn't think that Congress's silence in that instance reflected um, any specific intent to leave the case in tribal court if the defendant wanted it in. But you don't need an an intent to leave it in tribal court. You need need an intent to get it removed from tribal court. I mean, the the extant state of affairs is what it is. What we're looking for is some reason to remove it. Well, the reason to remove it is because the defendant has asserted, uh, the plaintiff has asserted a federal cause of action. And uh, we would think that Congress would want a defendant sued in tribal court to have the same right as a defendant sued in state court to get a, a federal forum. We think that Congress's failure to provide in Section 1441 for removal from tribal court was inadvertent. It doesn't reflect a policy choice on the part of Congress that such cases should remain in tribal court. Uh, simply the fact that. No, I don't mean to cut you off. Maybe you will address this. El Paso was stronger, it was a stronger case for your position in in one respect at least, because in El Paso, I think, as I recall it, uh, the the federal statute preempted all other causes of action so that the federal uh, federal right was, uh, in effect, was exclusive. Of course, you don't have that feature here. So if there's an injunction in this case on the El Paso model, uh, it in effect would, would leave the litigation to go forward uh, on, on non-1983 claims uh, arising, I mean, for example, tribal tort claims. Uh, and, and so the, the result would sort of be a bifurcation of the litigation and sort of a mess. And you, you didn't have that feature in El Paso. And shouldn't that bear on the question of whether we want to follow the El Paso model here. We don't think that would be the necessary result, Your Honor. As with removal from state court, any uh, pendant state causes of action uh, follow the federal cause of action. Okay, but I mean, this is getting Rube Goldberg. I mean, this now now there's another rule, uh, and, and, and pendant jurisdictional claims are now being removed by means of a novel use of injunction. I mean, it, there's, there's a character here that we're making up an awful lot as we go along on your theory. Well, there is a, a common law um, nature to much of this Court's jurisprudence with respect to Indian law. Uh, but what, what is the justification, then, for saying to the tribes that they could not proceed with their related tort actions in the tribal courts uh, merely because we think the 1983 action should be adjoin, enjoined uh, for, for purposes of quasi-removal. What's, what, what is, what is the, the, the basis for saying that they can't proceed in their own courts under their own law? Well, they certainly can choose to proceed in their own courts. Uh, they're the masters of their complaint, no, and I mean, uh, they can drop the night. No, but what I'm getting at is your notion that that the, all, that the tribal tort law claims would be deemed pendant to the 1983 actions and enjoined with them. And my, I'm saying, what is your basis for saying that the is is it simply a basis of of convenience to the defendant? Well, that's typically the treatment of um, state law claims. Uh, but when but we got a statute on it. Uh, We've got a statute. Yeah. How uh, does it work? That is, your, in your view on the tribal claims, your view is that the torts, if the tribe, suppose the tribe has a strict liability tort theory, and there is no defense of official action, and it says that all the FBI agents, uh, Bivens agents, Department of Interior agents, anybody you want in the federal government, is now going to be strictly liable for their torts. Okay? Now, in your view, they could just go do that. That's the government's view. That's the federal government's view. Well, there would be federal immunity defenses. As oh, where do they come from? Uh, they come from uh, the federal government's unique interest in law enforcement. So if they're going to have, and are we now going to uh, have a, a new sort of federal government thing we're making up, which, well, then why not have it all in the federal court? I mean, I'm a little worried what we're getting into and we're making these things up. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's not meant to be a criticism. I'm just 
quite having a hard time foreseeing where this case is going. Why does the federal government have a unique interest in law enforcement? I, my goodness, it's not only not unique, its interest in law enforcement is a good deal less than that of the states. They do most of the law enforcement in this country. Not with respect to Indian reservations, Your Honor. Uh, the federal government is the principal law enforcement authority on the reservations. It has delegated some not of that authority. Res- not with respect to state crimes that occur off the reservation. I mean, I, I can see the state... Can I ask you, it, it matters to me, it may not matter to anybody else, but can, can you resolve the conflict here as to whether uh, state uh, officers are allowed, uh, just on the basis of a state warrant, to uh, enter a reservation to pursue a criminal from state justice for a crime that occurred off the reservation? Not in the circumstances of this case. Footnote 7 of our brief cites some cases on the proposition. I think the way of looking at this is in the state-state context. If somebody commits um, a criminal offense in Nevada, yes, Nevada has the right to prosecute that offense. But if the person goes to California, perhaps even lives in California, if Nevada wants to execute a search warrant against that person's California home, the Nevada warrant isn't self-executing. There's a need to go to a California court to get approval of uh, the search, and we would say that the same model applies in the state-tribe situation. In that situation, I'm just thinking, aren't you really on the other side? Imagine this is only the 1983 action. What's the difference between your position and their position? Their position is that the 1983 action has to be brought in federal court. Your position is it has to be brought in federal court as long as the defendant wants to do it. Is, I mean, that seems to me the only practical difference. Am I As right? a practical matter, that, that may well be correct. And you have to think that the Ninth Circuit got it all wrong here, because as I take it, you're saying we let the tribe tribal member suing tribal court, but the defendant, state officer, the next day can remove it, and there's nothing that the tribe or the tribal member can do about it. It's just kind of we, we let them park for an hour in the, in the tribal court, and then the federal officer has the control, or the state officer has the control, can get it in immediately into a federal forum. Is that your position? Yes, although the tribal plaintiff would have the opportunity to amend his complaint to assert only tribal causes of action, in which case the uh, case would remain um, at least initially in tribal court. What about the officer's uh, position? I don't care whether whether they say it's tribal or 1983. I am cloaked with immunity because I was executing a state warrant. And that should be resolved in a state or federal forum, not in the tribal forum. And we disagree with that. We believe that uh, uh, the state officer's personal immunities are matters that should be presented first to the tribal court um, and then only subsequently to the federal court. So that this case could remain in tribal court if they just allege tribal torts. The officer says, I have qualified immunity. I don't want that resolved in tribal court, but it belongs in tribal court on your view of this. In our view, in the ordinary course, the uh, state officer defendant should raise the the defense first in tribal court and then would have review of the defense under the National Farmers Union approach in federal court after exhaustion. Now, in those circumstances — How far? It's only under the tribal code. Qualified immunity is the defense. At what point does that get over into a federal court? May I answer? Yes, shortly. If there's not an opportunity before trial for the defense to reach federal court, we would say exhaustion shouldn't be required. Thank you, Ms. McDowell. Uh, Mr. Howell, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. One of our major uh, concerns in this case is the non-federal claim in tribal court, because that's problematic, the removal of the non-federal claim if there's no federal uh, claim which it's pendant, uh, leaves us really in tribal court. And, and even if there's review of the immunity defense ultimately in federal court, there, there's no basis for federal court um, jurisdiction to review the judgment. And so it's, 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 um, it leaves us exactly where we started, uh, which is at the mercy of the tribal court. And, and that is in derogation of state sovereignty. Um, This isn't the kind of treatment that the federal government would accept for its own officials. 
And, and the reference I would make, if I may, in the U.S. brief is the footnote uh, 22 on page 29, where the whole theory of federal officer immunities is set out. And in the end, they conclude, just as we have, that because of the status of the tribes as dependent sovereigns within the federal system, additional considerations may apply to the exercise of tribal court jurisdiction over federal officers, even when sued in their personal capacities. And that's, that's exactly what we're asking for in this case uh, as state officers. We're not asking for any more than the federal government. And perhaps the, the difference here is due to the fact that uh, tribe, uh, the U.S. views states and tribes as coordinate sovereigns, coordinate sovereigns. And tribes and states are not coordinate sovereigns. They're different. States and tribes are fundamentally different. Uh, state immunities are, have a constitutional dimension, whereas tribes have been implicitly divested of their sovereignty to the extent that it's inconsistent with their status. And that's uh, our ultimate position in the case and explains the, the position we take. Um, thank you. Oh, thank you case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.